Now we're continuing on in our series entitled The Lion Roars. This is where we're going like verse by verse through the gospel account of Mark. And today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. Now, if you want, go ahead and grab a Bible. Turn to Mark chapter 1. If you're using one of our Bibles in the seats, that's page 836. Um, We're going to be looking uh, at those first 13 verses. And I I really enjoyed this series so far because, I mean, it's not often you go verse by verse through a book. Now, as, as a church, we always go verse by verse, okay? Let that be said. But this time we're actually traveling through the whole account of the gospel of Mark. And, you know, Pastor Scott kind of alluded to this and touched on this last week. Um, It's like the shortest of the four gospels. That's not why we picked it, though. (laughs) It's, It's the shortest of the four gospels. But, you know, growing up as a preacher's kid, I can't tell you, I, I don't even think I can count on one hand the number of times I heard a sermon in the gospel of Mark. Like, I remember vividly how many times in Matthew, Luke, oh my goodness, how many in John. And Mark is like the forgotten gospel, and that's such a shame, because it is so good. Like, who has kids in here? Yeah? Okay, so kids like picture books, right? This is kind of like Mark. It's like an action comic. It is fast-paced, rapid-hitting, vivid imagery, and he just goes boom, 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 keeps the whole story account, the gospel account of Jesus, just moving in the direction. And it's great. And we're going to see some of that today in the use of some of his words. Now, he wastes no time in introducing you and I, his readers, to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think one of the main reasons he wastes no time is because Mark's gospel account is primarily concerned with this, explaining the nature of of discipleship, explaining the nature of discipleship. Like he's concerned with explaining what it means to be a disciple. Now a disciple is defined as this, a person who is a pupil or an adherent of the doctrine of another, a follower. And for Mark, he understands a key question in discipleship is needed to be answered. If if a disciple is one who follows, then the obvious question he wants to drive at is, who is it we follow? Because we all have a who, don't we? For every single one of us, there's a who that we aspire to be like. Listen carefully, the who matters. The who tremendously, deeply matters. For instance, in today's culture, right? Today's culture, like, it tells you to follow celebrities. Pick one. Any of them. But it's all over the place. They glorify these celebrities in such a way, and then they push it on you to want to be like them. I have no... Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, So, yeah, so, like, Hollywood just pushes it on you. And it's not even necessarily Hollywood, per se. It's like these reality stars. It's like anybody that's not you, that's, like, famous, that's who you should want to follow. That's who you should want to be like. Social media totally exacerbates this, right? You're scrolling through. You're like, why am I seeing all this stuff about all these, like, YouTube personalities and all this stuff? Like, my kids are like, dude, perfect this. Dude, perfect that. They're awesome. I want to be just like them. I'm like, oh, shot to the heart. But I was there when I was a kid. 
It's telling us to follow others, to be like them at all costs, no matter what. To make matters worse, today's culture reeks of telling us to follow our truth. All right? So look, if you're like, so like, I don't want to be like any of those Hollywood people. Well, today's culture's got a solution for you. Follow yourself. Follow your truth, your version. And it's absolutely absurd if you think about it. Because if we follow our, our own truth, if we follow ourselves, that's basically who we're following, ourselves. I've never been able to successfully follow myself. I can't just get back here and look and learn to follow, right? And so it's just saying, like, follow yourself. And if we're to be honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I'm a wretched dude. Why would I want to follow myself or what I think is true? Why would I? See, we all follow someone or we want to follow someone even though we know they're not perfect. So the question is, who do you follow? Who do you want to be like? Who is it that has so much of your respect, so much of your admiration that you want to emulate them? Who is it that you spend your time learning from, studying from, developing from? Who is it? Who do you follow? See, when I was a kid growing up, there was one person I wanted to be like, and quite frankly, everybody else. Take, check this clip out. Sometimes I dream he is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. That's a blast down memory lane, right? I, if, you're, if you don't know that commercial, I have just now dated myself, which is sad, man. I may look like I'm young, but I'm not. I'm old and I have 12 billion kids. So, look, here's, but here's the deal, though. Did you catch it? This was back in like 90s, 80s time, and the culture's already telling us, be like someone else. Be like him, groove like him, move like him. And as a kid, as an adult, quite frankly, we buy into it. I mean, it didn't last long, me trying to be like Mike. You know what it ended? Eighth grade, when I hit my vertical prowess, that is five foot seven and a half inches, right? I mean, that's when it stopped. I mean, not to mention, I do not have good ball handling skills. But see, the thing that I didn't realize and here's the problem with following Mike and to be like Mike is he's severely flawed, just like every one of us. I mean, I didn't know that. But you go back and you watch this documentary on The Last Dance and you see all this stuff, 
all these people that he just wrecked in his wake of perfection on the court. But see, Mike didn't know me. He didn't know a single thing about me. I could pick him out in the crowd. I'd fly it right under his radar. See, he didn't pour into me. He didn't teach me. I poured into trying to learn from him what I could. I was the only one of us contributing to the process of me following him. See, no matter what, we are all a follower of someone. Someone who is special in our eyes. Someone who we feel is worth our time learning and growing from. So who is it that you follow? Who are you a disciple of? For Mark, the writer of this gospel account, the who matters so much, he blasts out of the gate in telling us and directing us to the who we, as disciples, as followers, should focus on. So if you're willing and able, I want to invite you in honor of reading God's magnificent holy word. Please stand as we read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals And the angels were ministering to him. This is the glorious, infallible, inerrant word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. So what we're going to find out this morning from our text is that Mark's going to answer three questions. Three questions as to the who we are called to be a disciple of. Who is coming, who has come, and what he's done. Now, the first question of who is coming is answered in the first verse right out the gate and then is expanded through the next seven, through verse eight. Verse one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But this really isn't a spoiler for you and I, is it? In fact, knowing who is coming helps us to understand even more of Jesus, the Son of God, in these first eight verses. See, these, eight, these first eight verses center on three things. A prophecy, a messenger, and the one who is coming. And Mark uses Old Testament prophecies to talk about how Jesus is coming fulfills prophecies of old. How Jesus is coming fulfills prophecies of the coming king, the coming Messiah, the son of God. 
And this prophecy is key in explaining the messenger's role as it pertains to the Lord. Now Mark quotes the book of Isaiah and a little bit of Malachi, and he kind of hodgepodges it, but he just took liberty to say it's from Isaiah. And it says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this prophecy involves a messenger preparing the way of the Lord for Jesus. Now, we know from subsequent verses that this messenger is who? It's John the Baptist. And it is his responsibility as the messenger of God to prepare the way of the Lord, to make the path straight for the one who is coming. Now the question we need to ask is how John the Baptist, as the anointed messenger of God, how in the world will he prepare the way of the one who is to come? How will he make straight the paths for Jesus, the son of God? Now something I never quite comprehended, probably because when I thought about this, I was early and I was not driving, but in biblical times, roads were not smooth. They weren't they weren't paved, right? Like there was no nice asphalt, right? And then you got the lane, lane stuff where it, like get back in lane, right? The roads back then were wretched. Rocky, roots, branches, you name it. And I mean, just think of the bumpiest ride you've been on and just amplify it by 100. You might be there. And there were servants and slaves whose job it was to clean, to level, to prepare and clear the roads, the paths, forget this, for royalty that was coming. For royalty. Because every king and queen wants that smooth ride. Right? Every king and queen deserves the smooth ride. Current day scenario, me and my best bud, we take our kids hiking, usually like twice a year. And it's just... It's common knowledge, when you hike, if you're the one in the front, you are clearing the way for everybody behind you, whether you want to or not. Spider webs, weeds, thorns, whatever, you name it. And you're clearing that way, why? To make it easier for those coming behind you, right? And so this prophecy is saying that John the Baptist will make the path smooth. He will prepare the path of the coming king, the coming son of God. And he will do this through a baptism of repentance. Verse verse 4 and 5 say, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. See, this is significant because a baptism of repentance was completely different from the ritual cleansing and washings done within Judaism. It was completely different. See, the baptism of repentance that John did was for the people of God who confessed their sin against God and repented of it. This baptism was a new rite that ushered in a return to God. So, so John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Lord and making his path straight, by a baptism of repentance, which symbolized the returning of the people of God back to God. Making ready the hearts of the people of God for the one who is coming, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now Mark continues on in verse 6 to describe this messenger, John the Baptist. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now you got to think, in such a fast-paced, action-comic type account, why would John the Baptist take the time to, uh, why would Mark take the time to describe John the Baptist? Well, it's very important because th this is a direct connection to Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, as described in 2 Kings 1. And this connection is very significant because this connection is really demonstrating to Mark's readers, to you and I, early on, that discipleship involves sacrifice and a withdrawal from the world and its pleasures. Meaning, if we follow Jesus... If we are a disciple of Jesus, then we should put priority on the things and ways of God, not the things and ways of the world. Now, the last two verses of this first section then bring back into focus the who is coming. So we talked about the prophecy and the messenger, right? Now we're talking about right back into who matters, the one who is coming. Verse 7 continues, and he preached saying, after me, John the Baptist says this, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, the one who is coming is powerful like none other. But this makes sense in light of the prophecy, doesn't it? Royalty was coming. The Son of God was coming. Jesus the Messiah the Savior of the world, was coming. And John knew he was completely unworthy to do even the smallest thing for Jesus, to untie his sandals. But verse 8 is where John the Baptist really hits home for you and I with the difference of the one who is coming. John the Baptist has baptized with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John's baptism is a baptism done with water. But Jesus will baptize the believer with the Holy Spirit. John 16 says this, and this is Jesus speaking. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. For those who believe in Jesus, for those, for those who follow Jesus, for those who are true disciples of Jesus, get this, he gives the Holy Spirit to help. No one else but the Son of God could do that. Already in Mark, the readers should be excited about the one who is coming. I mean, this gets me excited. I don't know about you, but it should get you hemped up as well. Because we see something very important about the one who is coming. The one who is coming will do things differently. The one who is coming will do things differently. Why? Because Jesus Christ will do things differently. But as quickly as Mark jumped in to answer the question of who is coming, he slingshots, I told you, just boom, 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 slingshots into answering the next question, who has come? Who has come? And this question is answered in the next three verses, verses 9 through 11. And verse 9 tells us this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the, in the River Jordan. Now, this is very important for us not to glaze over. 
Typically, you could just kind of read right through it. But you got to think about this. The one who has come, Jesus, he didn't get baptized because he needed to repent. He's the son of God, flawless, completely sinless, perfect. So the question we need to answer is why in the world would Jesus then get baptized? Why? I think for two reasons. First, out of obedience to God the Father's will. And second, because this communicates that Jesus is joining in on and continuing the movement of radical repentance that John the Baptist started. He's continuing on. He's picking up and carrying on to completion this whole thing about repentance and returning to God. It's only Jesus. See, the one who has come is about repentance and obedience. Essentially, heart change. Heart change. And this signifies that the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that he will establish in advance, is that one that concerns heart change and heart dedication. Now Mark continues detailing the baptism of Jesus in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now there are two important points in this verse. The heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Both of which are very significant in regards to the one who has come. See, the heavens being torn open is very significant because in this imagery, we see a re-engaging of divine communication with God and his people. See, don't forget, don't forget, it had been hundreds of years since God had spoken to his people through prophets, through anybody. And now we have this image of the heavens just being torn open. And this imagery is signifying that there's now a divine intervention and new revelation after the long years of silence from God to his people, the people of Israel. See, the one who has come matters so much, he's heavenly significant. So much so that the heavens are being torn open upon the baptism of Jesus. And then we see what? The Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now this is significant because it shows how Jesus Christ, get this, how Jesus was uniquely equipped with the Holy Spirit for the perfect work that laid ahead of him to accomplish for you and I. Jesus Christ was uniquely equipped with the Holy Spirit for the perfect work that laid ahead of him, get this, through temptation, through pain, through suffering, through loss, through sorrow, and ultimately through death. Through it all, though, Jesus' perfection succeeded for you and I. Man, that's good news. That's great news. It's the best news. News that should propel us to and want to actually follow Jesus. Amen? You wake. Jesus rocks. There's nobody else like him. Now verse 11 continues on with the baptism of Jesus by saying, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now, 
The voice from heaven is clearly God the Father speaking to God the Son. And here's what I absolutely love about the account of Mark. Get this, we're only in verse 11. And we already have the three persons of God there at the baptism of Jesus. We have God the Father speaking to God the Son and and God the Holy Spirit descending upon to equip Jesus for only the work that he can do. Man, that's goosebumps. Verse 11, we got the three persons of God front and center. This has great significance, dear friends, in telling us about the one who has come. We now see that the one who has come, Jesus Christ, is the unique son of God and is specially blessed by the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, what God the Father says to Jesus Christ highlights Jesus in two very important ways. First, when he addresses Jesus as his beloved son, this confirms for Mark, it confirms for you and I that Jesus Christ is true king. God the creator of all and his son at his right hand, Jesus is the true king. The one who has come is the true king, not just of the people of God in Israel, but of the church, you and I. Better yet, all creation. And then when God the Father says, with you I am well pleased, this is an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as the true servant of God. Now here Mark's actually referring back to Isaiah again, chapter 42, which says, get this, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. See, Jesus is the true servant of the Lord, brings back into focus his perfection and his righteousness. Jesus was uniquely equipped to serve God the Father and to obey God the Father perfectly. So this dichotomy of roles that we have here between true king and true servant should be fascinating for you and I as disciples of Jesus Christ. As disciples of the one who has come. The reason is this, get this, the one who has come is different. The one who has come is different. Jesus is different. See, the one who has come, he's not just a king, but a servant. The one who has come doesn't just rule perfectly, he obeys perfectly. The one who has come, he's not just powerful, he's also sacrificial. The one who has come hasn't come to conquer kingdoms. He's come to conquer hearts and restore them back to what they were intended for. Get this, perfect dependence on and fellowship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. That's amazing. How glorious is that? Talk about someone worth following. So up to this point, Mark's answered the question of who is coming and who has come. And now in the last two verses, Mark answers one last question, what he's done. Now, I know that's not technically a question, but we still have to answer what he's done. So I'm, I put a question mark. So thank you for the liberty of doing that. And he does this very quickly. 
Mark answers this last question in just two verses, whereas Matthew and Luke take much longer. Matthew does it in 11 verses. Luke does it in 13. And he talks about, in these last two verses, the temptation of Jesus. Verse 12 begins with, the spirit immediately drove him out. Remember, this is a fast-paced account. Count how many times you read the word immediately as we go through Mark. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I want to highlight three important and often overlooked things in verses 12 and 13 as it pertains to what he's done. First, the Holy Spirit drove or led Jesus out into the wilderness. Mark says drove, whereas Luke says led. Either way, the Holy Spirit who just anointed Jesus during his baptism is now initiating the compelling and leading of Jesus out into the wilderness. God is the one initiating the journey of Jesus into the wilderness. Now, second... Jesus willingly went. He didn't resist, and instead he submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit. This shows that Jesus didn't just passively go. And and he wasn't dragged out there by Satan, because if he was dragged out, we've got a whole power dynamic problem now. It doesn't show that. He willingly went. He didn't reluctantly go. He didn't slow down or drag his feet. He didn't do like every kid does when they don't want to do what their parents tell them to do. Right? Hey, clean up this. Okay. I don't want to. That's not the picture of Jesus here. That is not at all. He was led and he went where the spirit led him immediately. Jesus was then tempted by Satan. The Holy Spirit was the initiator of the event, but not the cause of the temptation. Let's be very clear about that. Satan alone tempts. God tests. Why? God tests us to grow us, to refine us, to mold us, to shape us into who? The image of the one we should follow. Isn't that cool? So cool. Now, in regards to the actual details of the temptation, because Mark is so brief, we've got to kind of go back to Matthew and Luke and kind of use their more robust account of this temptation to supplement our passage. In both Matthew and Luke's account, if you want to go back and read it this week, both occur in chapter 4 of Matthew and Luke. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read them. You're welcome. But I will give a quick synopsis so we're kind of all on the same page, okay? (laughs) Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. We're not talking woods and forests. We're talking dry, desert, stinking, burning hot during the days, cold at night. Water is like liquid gold. If you find it, man, that's amazing. I've physically been there. It's one of the most miserable yet astounding days of my life. It is just miserably hot. And to top it all off, there's jagged cliffs, there's caves, there's all kinds of stuff. Wildlife is, they're there, but it's, you're hard-pressed to kind of find them. And Jesus was fasting for 40 days. Fasting. Nothing. 
For a diabetic like me, that blows my mind because I think I would die. But Jesus fasted for 40 days. And then Satan alone tempted Jesus three times. If you have been fasting for 40 days, what do you think he's going to try and tempt you with? Food, bread. Jesus quotes scripture, says no. Satan tempts Jesus with power and authority. Hello, the true king of all creation. And like Satan's got something to give, Jesus quotes scripture, says no. And then finally, Satan challenges Jesus to test God's own faithfulness to his word. And see, in every temptation, Jesus remained perfect. He used scripture to thwart the devil's temptations. Did you catch that? Jesus used scripture every time and not succumbing to the temptations of Satan. So I have a question. When do you engage with this glorious book? When do you engage with it? Is it when you need something? It's a magic lamp. Maybe if I read it because I need something, God will give it because I read his word. Is it because you want to feel good? Again, magic lamp, it's been a rough day, work was awful, kids have been nuts. If I read this, I'm going to feel better, magically. Sadly, I know there's those of you out there that only engage with this on a Sunday in church. Dear friend, dear brother and sister in Christ, how can we follow someone if we don't listen to or even know what they say? How do you follow if you're not listening? This is God's word to you and I. His love story to you and I. To motivate us. To enamor us with how glorious and beautiful he is. And if we're not taking the time to read this, oh man, we're missing out on the most important person to follow, the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me encourage you, find a way. Find a way to get in God's word. Set a timer, I don't know, create space, I don't know. Do it in the bathroom when your kids can't get in the locked door. Deal with them knocking on it, but guess what? You're alone. But don't do it because you have to do it. Do it because you get to do it. Because you want to know him more. You want to fall in love with the one you're following even more. You see, in the victory of Jesus over his tempting by Satan, we see something beautiful that should encourage and motivate our affections for him even more. Get this, Jesus Christ succeeded where we failed. Jesus Christ succeeded where you and I failed and failed continuously. There's not a single one of us in this room today that has resisted temptation perfectly. Am I right? You, yeah, you just, something happens and then, and then we, we have this way of rationalizing that we gave in, right? And, and justifying it like, well, if this didn't happen, I wouldn't have done this or responded this way. <laughs> we are not perfect. Not one of us has perfectly resisted temptation. Not one. And the fact that he succeeded where we failed should motivate us to want to follow him. Please don't miss this. We see something in these final two verses that's extremely profound. We see that what he's done 
Simply put, different. Jesus has done it differently. This, this doing it differently reminds me of a man by the name of Dick Fosbury. Most people are like, who in the world is that? Just watch this short clip. It'll kind of explain it. The 1968 Olympic Games proved to be a turning point in the history of the high jump event. Into the Mexico City Olympic Arena came not only a new name to the sport, but a new approach, which was to revolutionize the high jump event. Dick Fosbury from the United States demonstrated a new style of high jump, which some considered strange and awkward. It was a jump he had devised in the previous years, and one which unsettled his opponents. While the crowd at first saw him as a novelty, his continued success at clearing the ever-increasing height soon made it apparent he was a serious contender. Valentin Gabrilov from the Soviet Union failed at his attempt of 2.22 meters, while Fosbury and his US teammate Edward Carruthers cleared their way to a jump off. The bar sat at 2.24. Carruthers failed and Fosbury took his new style of high jump over the bar and into the history books. Fosbury had won his gold. Within a few years, the Fosbury flop had become the standard method of jumping in this great Olympic sport. See, the reason his flop was so revolutionary because it had never been done before. It was completely different. Whereas most high jumpers approached face forward and uh, scissor kicks, jumped though, I don't know, he approached it backwards facing. And in turn, guess what? It revolutionized the sport of high jumping in such a way that every achievement, every goal since then has been using the Fosbury flop. It was so revelational to the world of sports. Now, hear me carefully. As outstanding of a revelation as the Fosbury flop was to the world of sports, there is absolutely no revelation greater than the perfection of Jesus Christ in life, death, and resurrection for you and I. And so we come to another question. Why has Jesus done it differently? Because he's done it perfectly. Jesus has done it differently because Jesus has done it perfectly. When we are weak, he's strong. When we're broken, he puts us back together. When we're lost, he seeks us out and saves us. When we're empty, he fills us. Our best is not enough. His perfection is complete. This is, glorious, this is the glorious good news of the gospel that Mark explains in these first 13 verses. He wants to affect us by motivating us to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow Jesus. So let's get back to that first question I asked this morning. Who do you follow? Who do you truly follow? Because the who deeply, greatly matters. A better follow-up question that matters greatly is this. Why do you want to follow them? Why do you want to be like them? I think if we're honest, we covet their skills. Oh, no, Derek. No, that's not it. We covet their talents. No, that's not it either. 
We covet their wealth. We covet their power. No, 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 Derek. That's not it. Do you understand the reason why we want to be like someone and follow someone is because we do covet something they have? Look, when I grew up, growing up, I had an amazing dad. Love him to death. I wanted to be like my dad. I did. I wanted to be like my dad. Why? Because my dad was good to me. And he had a set of skills, very relational, very personal, very loving, very biblically minded with the worldview. And I wanted to be like him so that I could have something that I thought I didn't have. And so when we're trying to be like someone, when we're following someone other than Jesus, what we're saying is, you have something that I want for myself that I don't have. Let me follow you. Let me try to be like you so that I can what? Acquire it. You see the core selfishness within each of us. As good as we are at justifying, it does not strip away the selfishness that is at the core of each and every one of us. So who do you follow? Why do you want to follow them? Why do you want to follow them if you know they're flawed? Why do you want to follow them if you know they're selfish at their core being, just like you and I? Why do you want to follow them if you know that they're going to fail you at some point? As much as I love my wife and my kids, man, I fail them. Kids, don't be like me. Be like Jesus. Follow Jesus. And my prayer is that God can use me to direct them to follow who they should be following, not my wretched self, as much as I love them. Why would you follow them if you know they can never love you as much as you love them? Why do we want to follow others, church family, more than we want to follow Jesus? Why? I think we forget. I think we forget that Jesus is the son of God and he did this immaculate thing for you and I. I think we lack belief in the power of Jesus Christ in life, death, and resurrection and how that translates to us. Why? Because he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think we forget we lack belief. The who matters immensely. Let me remind you, Jesus Christ is absolutely worth following. Why? Because Jesus Christ is different, and Jesus Christ does it different. He's different from any other person you would choose to follow. Because get this, Jesus is not flawed. He's the perfect son of God. He lived a perfect life, consequently died a perfect death just for you. Because Jesus isn't selfish. He is selfless. He gave up everything for you. Because Jesus never fails, not in life, not in death, never. He never fails. Because Jesus poured out everything for you. He even took the wrath of God that was reserved for you and I, that, that should have been poured out on us, and he drank it willingly when he died on that cross. Because Jesus loves you more, dear friend, more than you can ever know. He loves you even while you are a sinner. Even while you still have moments where you give in to temptation. Even moments where you still get frustrated and act out in anger. He loves you still more than you know.
even though you're flawed, even through the mess that is you. This room is a room of beautiful messes. We're all a mess, but thanks be to God the Father through his glorious son, Jesus Christ, that he makes, he makes straight lines out of crooked sticks. Only Jesus can do that. Let me encourage you with what the Gospel of Mark uncovers for us today. The power of Jesus Christ rests in who he is and what he's done. The power of Jesus Christ rests in who he is and what he's done. Believe and trust in who Jesus is and what he's done. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I can't even begin to explain how thankful we are, how thankful I am for the grace and mercy that you extended to me, to us, when you sent your son, Jesus. God, I pray today that in this room that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts and our lives, God, to help us, to motivate us, to, to love you more, to, to want to follow you more, God. Help us, help us have this burning passion for your glorious son and your glorious word. God, help us to just remember the truth of the gospel, God, that we are wretched, we are wrecked, but God, you love us. God, I pray for someone out here today, God, who's, who's been following someone else or who, who, who's not ever yet followed you, God, I pray that they will reach out to you and just say, I am broken, God. I want to follow you. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I pray your Holy Spirit stirs this morning in this place. God, you are an immense God. And we could spend a thousand forevers trying to know you more, and it still would not suffice. God, that's how glorious you are. So God, as we continue in worship, God, I pray that, that you will speak, that you will move, that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts and in our lives and minds. God, we love you, we trust you, and it's in Jesus' perfect name we pray.